Thank you for downloading the African Studies Seminar podcast, presented by the University of Oxford's African Studies Center. David for your kind introduction. Um, in this talk I'm going to be uh, speaking about the links between policing and politics as might be evident from the title uh, in what can be described as legally pluralistic and in this case urban settings. That is settings where sovereignty is divided and where there are numerous competing order-making practices and actors who engage in these practices. By focusing on this link, I approach policing as both integral to the political in the sense of the underlying contested processes through which order is defined, enacted and established, but also policing as politicized in various ways in the sense of being subservient or used or instrumentalized to more or less explicit political aims and practices. This has been argued before, but what I should also argue, which is much more or less argued or seen in the literature on policing is that policing can itself also become politically productive of new spaces of politics, forms of authority, and political styles. I mean, most of the, the research that's come out on policing, including uh, uh, people like Alice Hills and Bruce Baker, focus very much on how the policing becomes used by other political actors, but very few have actually discussed how they in themselves are also productive in this field. So that's what I'm going to try. Uh, to convince you about through this. I mean, there's some literature on, on vigilantism that speak about this to a much more fundamental extent, but not formal uh, kinds of policing. And that's exactly what I'm going to be talking about because my research is based on the study of community policing um, since 2009 in Mozambique uh, and very much more recently in Swaziland. Uh, in urban areas, I'm going to be talking about the urban research that I've been doing uh, in poor urban areas characterized by very high levels of crime uh, unemployment, or at least very high levels of unemployment, but also areas that are very heterogeneous. They have populations that have either very recently come to the areas or within the last one or two generations, mainly looking for jobs, looking for uh, ways to kind of, of, of make it. But even though uh, there are those aspirations, it's mainly areas that are characterized by high levels of poverty and livelihood uncertainty. Um, but you also find like middle class people, as you can see by the very different ways of level, level of housing, which of course reminds other people of the possibilities that actually are. So these are the kinds of contexts. And the kinds of community policing groups that I've, I've been looking at are what can be called state-initiated community policing groups, um, those that have been uh, instigated or initiated by the ministries or by the state police in each of these countries, in both cases with support from Western donors um, and with drawing on inspiration from kind of formal uh, community policing models from the West, especially the UK and the US from the 1980s. And in the models that, that have been implemented here are not the kind where it's necessarily only the state police officers that are trained to engage with the local communities, but it takes the form of forming councils and forums where ordinary citizens are enrolled or kind of invited to voluntarily take part and then discuss uh, crime problems and solutions with the state police. Not actually perform state police tasks, but engage in discussions with the police about, uh, about solutions. 
So what I've been looking at um, in this context is what kind of social political formation these community policing groups have actually turned out to be in practice, what kinds of persons it creates, and also what this means more broadly for order-making activities and policing within these plural arenas where it's not been like kind of uh, uh, empty spaces, only the state police that's been performing uh, these kinds of, of policing functions, but also a range of other actors that I will return to, and the competitions between these. So what I found out, which of course is revealed already by my title, uh, <coughs> by my focus on the political issues, is something very quite different than those intended councils, those talk shops, so to speak, partnering with the police. In both areas, they quite quickly established themselves and large, as largely independent authorities with their own quasi-legal courts, where they received cases every day and from where they also daily perform what we would traditionally, or at least in Western criminology, categorize as traditional state police functions, including arrests, interrogations, searches, and so forth. And this picture is from one of those uh, rooms or venues in, in, in the area of Shamankulu in Maputo, where I did my field work. Um, there's a lot of symbolism in that that I will come, come back to, as you can see. Um, also, it was envisioned very much in the policy documents uh, of the state police in both countries and by the donors that supported it, that the members <coughs> would typically be like respected elders from the communities. It would be like representatives of NGOs, teachers. Like, it was described as good, respectable, social you know, actors with some kind of social status that would take part of the in these groups, but also that didn't live. Uh, also, that was different in, in reality. Rather, it's been become um, uh, a place for the recruitment of young, largely unemployed or at least very underemployed uh, young men who have entered these groups or who, in the end, have become, become the active expression of community policing groups because, as I returned to, there were elders and respectable people actually uh, part of these groups in the beginning. Irrespective of these discrepancies between policy and practice in both in Buleni, Swaziland and Shamankuli, Mozambique, the community policing groups have been celebrated for having drastically reduced crime and also they are both feared and admired for their notorious use of force, consistent punishment and capacity to act for direct actions or to react immediately to crime, such as also bringing back stolen goods or money that has been lent and not given back. As I will discuss in the rest of this lecture, these achievements by community police means that the community policing groups have become powerful players in what is de facto a plural legal landscape of other dispute resolution and political actors including the state police, where there's a lot of competition over authority, resources, and clients. But the community policing groups have also become politically significant beyond the strict domain of dispute resolution and policing. Uh, they have also produced new political spaces through which its own members can transform themselves, move forward in life, or even get a political career. And it's also become a political space where others can turn to as a source of power to advance <coughs> their own political interests and goals. So that's the politically productive argument that I'm going to forward. Based on this, I argue that community policing is both subject to different political strategies and forms of instrumentalization by others, and is itself productive of new kinds of politics. I will unfold this argument by looking at what I have identified as layers of politics, and I'm not quite sure that that's where I'm conceptually going to end, uh, end up, 
um, but at least this is an attempt to kind of make sense of, of the material I have. Uh, I've identified four layers of politics, uh, which can be overlapping, uh, but they also differ, but I mean, so they should be seen like mine and little distinctions. The first one is, is the politics of sovereignty. The second one is the politics of local power positions. The third one is what I call the politics of selfhood and mobility. And then the fourth one is what we would more like explicitly or conventionally associate with politics and what I call the explicit politics of the national arena or the national political, uh, political uh, arena. And just uh, before I turn to show a little bit of little bit of pictures so you know what groups I'm going to be talking more in depth about through these, uh, through these different uh, layers of politics. Um, this picture is, uh, as I said before, the venue of where the community police in, in Maputo, in Shamankulu, where did field work uh, resolves the cases. And in a sense, uh, it embraces like different aspects of these uh, layers of politics. Um, uh, the sovereignty in the sense of, you can see the blood on the blood on the, you can't really see it because the colors are so bad, but this is the blood on the wall and the kind of contestations or the politics around uh, sovereign power between the state police and the community police that I'm going to be speaking about. Then there is the, this uh, voter campaign, which is actually after, after the campaign, but the community police were dragged into that uh, political campaign. Uh, by the local politicians to kind of give protection, uh, as I will return to as well. But in fact, when you asked them why they had it there, they said it was not because they were supporting the political campaign, but it was because they had never, by the state, been given one of these pictures of the president that all official kind of state uh, authorities have to symbolize that they were a formal kind of authority and institution. So in lack of better, they had put that up to kind of signal that they were an established kind of authority within, within this field. And just uh, to, just before I go, go a little bit into to, um, to, to these different layers of politics, uh, just to say, David, that I'm not going to make like a proper comparative analysis between Swaziland and Mozambique because I actually did the first part of my fieldwork in Swaziland just this year. So it's and I'm meant to continue. So I'm more going to be like it's mainly based on my Mozambican research, but I'm going to like be drawing mostly out some of the similarities that have come out from Swaziland. So I mean, there are obviously a lot of differences that needs to be explored historically and contemporarily, but that's not what I'm able to do here, hopefully in the paper that will come out of it uh, at, some, at some point. So this picture um, shows what I would call the official discourse or the official background, uh, the official politics behind uh, the adoption of community policing in, in Mozambique, where there are many similarities to Swaziland uh, as well. Although it was cast very much in this kind of democratic discourse of um, of the civil society involvement in, in human security, which you've probably heard if you are read donor documents, but also the devolution of power in, in finding security solutions, this kind of liberal democratic uh, discourse, then very much what I found in both uh, countries, and also if you go deeper into kind of the documents that are there, is as I have discussed elsewhere, then if not directly the intended goal, then at least community policing was implemented by the state police as a way to save the state police, or in other words, to claim and establish their official sovereign authority. 
by expanding their outreach through intermediaries and by taming or domesticating unruly elements in society, which besides the obvious criminals, also included informal policing groups and popular justice actors. And in, in, in Mozambique, uh, when community policing was implemented from 2001, uh, what had been there before, popular vigilances and militias, which was also a kind of a state-initiated policing, had kind of died out. There was a gap, but there was a lot of occurrences of, on top of, of, of rising crime, a lot of occurrences of mob justice, uh, self-organized <laughs> community uh, policing groups like others would like similar to the vigilantes that, that David had also been been talking about. So it was very much in response to what, in fact, the Ministry of Interior, under which the Mozambican police fall, was a community policing was very much by them talked about as a response to a, an anarchism in society of these unruly kind of elements. Uh, not only the criminals, but also these kind of unruly groups that were taking care of what the state actually was supposed to take uh, to take care of. Uh, similar in Swaziland, actually there was a political dispute between some of these groups that had existed before the formal uh, initiative, claiming that they were the ones that started community policing, not the state police. So there was an, an actually more like politically explicit dispute about who were the owners of this. But in go both countries, it was very much as is very well depicted in this picture, uh, an, an attempt by the state police to kind of incorporate uh, uh, citizens into, into policing rather than recognizing what was already there. And this is a picture from, um, this is a picture from the 35th anniversary of the, of the police of the Republic of Mozambique, uh, Republica de Mozambique, uh, big parades and the very big celebration where you see in front you have the, the community police and then you have the real the real state the state police behind there and I don't know if you can notice also uh, that these are all kind of old guys uh, because the young guys actually I had brought uh, some young guys there because I was invited and they were not given t-shirts because they were those, still those kind of unruly young ones and I'll come back to that so it was only like the old respect that were given t-shirts but still very symbolic kind of this incorporation of community policing groups under the state and it says police police and community together uh, for security in Portuguese But what happened was not this kind of um, beautiful incorporation, uh, at least not in the long run. Uh, in the beginning, yes, there was this sense uh, for the police that they credited a lot from actually the capacity of even the young groups uh, that community policing turned out to be uh, of, of bringing down the crime. There was a lot of collaboration. There was a lot of joint patrols. But gradually, uh, uh, in both uh, Swaziland, uh, Buleni, where I did field work, and also in, 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 in Maputo, and other cases, cases I've heard of, it very kind of quite quickly turned into something much more independent uh, and much more detached from the state uh, police as well. Continuing sometimes collaboration, but a lot of the time also doing, doing their own job, actually take, continuing uh, what the police was trying to get rid of. And my argument is that it's this development of, of autonomy or partly independent that was the real turning point for the transformation of community policing into becoming politically significant. 
that was when they actually established these quasi-courts. Uh, <coughs> and I'm just going to show you the venues. This is the community policing group from, uh, from Shamakul. There were many more members, but it's very difficult to get them all together at the same time. And these t-shirts were given to them by a local businessman, a young guy, who really liked them a lot. And the mama is um, Mama Sara. She's actually the only like uh, elderly woman I've ever met, in, like also when I've known of other other groups as well. But uh, she was like kind of the anomaly or the exception within this uh, this group. She's actually been thrown out uh, while I've been away um, because there were some power disputes uh, around the leadership uh, of of the group. And this is a fraction of the group in uh, in Buleni. Um, this guy with the cake, he's, uh, he's one of the bad boys, but uh, that's a story in itself. He was just arrested very recently. When I was away, I got an email from my assistant <laughs> saying that he was arrested. I had a kind of a feeling, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. So that's also one of the points that you have both like different kinds of dichotomies within these groups, as I also return to. This is the venue of, um, of the community police in Shamankulu, and also very much part of consolidating this autonomy or part independence of these groups is that in the case of, of, of Shamankulu in, 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 in Maputo, actually this was facilitated by the local authorities, the local, uh, this, this building itself belonged to the Frelimo party, but it's also where the local administrator or the neighborhood secretary uh, works from. So the kind of independence was very much facilitated by them being given this space where they could actually start to receive People. Because from having had a period where they were mainly doing patrols, attacking criminals, bringing down crimes, working with the police, then they actually started to be approached by people by, with all kinds of cases, both crimes but also a range of social, social disputes and family disputes that were also taken care of by, by other authorities. And this is the venue of the community police in, in Buleni in Swaziland. Uh, so it's a much more public, open space. I'll come back to the difference um, between that, just touch on it uh, later on. Um, and um, there's also a difference in, in kind of in the venues of how they... This is very much like kind of a state space, and the way that the community police operated in, in Shamankulu uh, was much more a copy of the police in the way that the procedures were carried out. Uh, as well, and I think the, somehow the venue maybe didn't have a direct impact on that, but at least it, it fitted together in that sense. That's, that's something I have to look a bit more on. Whereas in Imbuleni, they, they would also copy police tactics, but they also very much drew, drew on the registers of the Council of Elders, uh, principles of reconciliation, the way they heard it. They drew on a lot of religious and traditional language as well, uh, spoke a lot about witchcraft, which they didn't do. Uh, they do in Mozambique a lot, but the community police uh, was not an issue in, in the community police. Okay, so let me go deeper into these uh, different layers of politics that I um, started out by mentioning um, in the beginning. The politics of sovereignty, of sovereign power, I define as the contested efforts to control the violence that enacts the boundary between the inside and the outside of a given order. That is the violence that marks the exterior upon which sovereign power is constituted, expressed for instance in punishments, discipline and exclusion of subjects. 
This layer of politics was very much played out uh, in the relationship between the state police and the community police, and extended beyond this kind of formal claim to sovereign sovereignty that I was speaking about before, which was one of the kind of formal impetus uh, for, for the whole uh, uh, community policing initiative um, of the, the state police in both countries. This aspect had very much to do with the fact that the community police began to engage not only in handling, handling crimes on their own, in quite established ways in these venues, but importantly also that they frequently use physical force uh, during interrogations and as punishments. The control of such violence and the politics around us is very precarious and contested games. There were a lot of balancing acts going on between the state police and the community police. It was influenced both by layers of competition, but also, in a sense, layers of interdependency. This was so because the state police, at least at the local level, needed the community police to reduce crime to show that actually the job of reducing crime was being done. Um, but also, it could not challenge the authority of the state police, not at least publicly. And, and to show that the police was able to control this violence or these kinds of punishment, very important to this image of the state, uh, state's authority still being in control. So it was not so much that the performance of violence was kind of negated uh, or presented as some, something necessarily negative by the state police, but it was the fact that when it kind of became public that they were not in control of that violence, that it became seen as a threat to state uh, sovereignty, which of course says something about the, the aspect and use of violence in these countries, as well as partly legitimate and accept, despite the fact that formally it's, it, it's illegal. For the community police, um, violence is also very important because I argue that their use of violence is both what makes them attractive, because much of the success that they have had of bringing down crime is actually attributed to their capacity to use violence, or at least the threat thereof, their capacity to re react very forcefully uh, to crime. And yet it's also what to the police is, is obviously the most hated or the most feared part. So let me just give, uh, give an example of how this was uh, expressed more concretely in Chamakulu, in, in, in Maputo, and then, and then in Swaziland. Uh, without like taking too much time, uh, because it, it's a bit complicated how it was constituted. But the thing is, in Chamakulu, the, the, the paradox of the relationship between the state police and the community police was perhaps very most eloquently expressed in the fact that, that at least this is my argument, that the use of violence by community police was instigated by the state in the first place. Uh, I watched it with my own eyes, but also the whole history of it, that when the police was present uh, in the venue that I showed, which did happen once in a while, they outsourced the physical use of violence on suspects or criminals to the community police. So you would have the police officers sitting there, and then when the interrogation was going on and, and uh, torture was needed, um, then they would ask one of the community policing officers to do the actual beating. And also, and I didn't participate in this training financed by GTZ, although I don't think they were there, <laughs> but part of the training done by the police commanders was also showing the community police, according to the community police members, where to hit the criminals so it wouldn't show visible signs. I mean, it's in the products, and that's also how they practiced it um, uh, during this. But 
the thing is that community policing continued this on their own as the police was not present, they didn't come, so they kind of took over this performance or copied this performance in their own independent sphere. Um, and that's when kind of the authority of the state police became challenged, and it was around, very much around this, that this politics of sovereign power uh, was going on. The reaction of the police was, uh, when, it, when it came to the ears of the police that they had used force on their own, and even worse, if they had kind of done it in public, or that if it had left physical marks, was that they were strictly told off, and they tried to expel them, some of the members came back in, and they also tried actually to raise... Uh, uh, to change the leadership uh, in, in these areas. But it was a very intricate uh, issue because obviously the community police were also knew that the police were using force so they could tell on the local police officers. So that's what I'm talking about, this new, like kind of competition but also mutual uh, competition. And another interesting thing is that the way that the community police engaged in this so-called game of politics of sovereignty uh, was that they, uh, when I was doing field work there, it became more and more common that when they had caught the criminals um, without actually the whole process being completed and they wanted to send the criminal to the police station or the victim wanted it to, the community police gave the, the criminals or the suspect a little bit of a beating, sometimes a little bit, a lot of the beating, uh, before they took them to the state police. And obviously I asked, you know, why are you doing this? And, and I quote one of the community policing members, we beat them because we already know they're criminals. They know that they are like criminals in, in the society. So we want to make sure that they're punished, that they feel on their bodies what they have done. Because with the police station, you never know if they will be freed or go to court or if they'll be punished. And if they don't feel get punished, they will just come back here and commit crime. And also people here know that with us, there's always punishment. So the Authority, on the one hand, the, the authority and the power of the community police rested with this expectation of them making sure that the criminals were, were punished. There were also elements actually of self-protection in it because the criminals would be more afraid to come back and threaten the community police if they had had a little beating, like if they got out after 48 hours without evidence, so, you know, following the ordinary justice system rules. Um, but also there was a few uh, cases where the victims actually came with uh, the case uh, and, and the suspect were found, and the victims asked the community, please, please can you give them a little bit before we go and open a formal process. So they kind of wanted both that, make sure there was a punishment, and then they also wanted to follow the formal kind of procedures. Um, there was a, this, for example, happened with a very like well-educated uh, mama uh, who had a big business who came there actually uh, from the outskirts uh, and asked the community police to give a little bit of of a, of a beating before she opened uh, a case. Uh, in Impuleni, the violence was much more, um, much more visible, much more public. Uh, in the beginning, um, the stories that I heard was that it was, uh, if not like overtly supported, then at least implicitly supported by the state police. But later on, it became seen as as, as something bad, and and the community police. Uh, uh, officers became came up in it came up in the media that they were uh, a lot beating people and the state police headquarters took strong measures expelled some some of the members who some of them came back uh, again as well so there was like 
first this very large acceptance of it, and uh, and then later on the police hit very hard down on it. And when I spoke to them about why there was kind of this uh, change, I mean the state police answer would be. Uh, that obviously was because it was against the law and it was because our concept had been hijacked and it had been misunderstood uh, from the beginning. But according to uh, to both the community policing members and also uh, ordinary citizens in the area, it was very much this idea that it was because the police was jealous, you know, because the community police, you know, they knew really how to deal with these with these uh, issues. And and a journalist that I spoke with, he said, yeah, but I mean, it happened when these. Uh, it came in the media, this beating, because it was kind of it shamed the police that they couldn't really control, you know, these groups that were supposed to be theirs, you know, like, you know, working for the police. So it was kind of like showing that the police uh, were also uh, weak. And the, uh, I th think this is like comes to the heart of this kind of politics of, of, of sovereign power as being like this, this uh, mutual independency, but also this competition over controlling this, this kind of... Uh, the, the, the violence, which is very much what, what is accredited to the success of bringing down crime, and you can discuss that from uh, various normative perspectives, uh, uh, of course. Uh, this picture, before I turn to the next politics, and I am obviously probably soon running out of time already, um, is just to show uh, that what was interesting was that in both uh, in Bulenia and and, and, and in both the uh, Maputo and, uh, and, and Swaziland, there was a shared like kind of reference point to what uh, Hansen and Sebutet have called like the sublime dimension of sovereignty. And that was not contest. I mean, in Mozambique it was very much, this is some, it's not somewhere myself, but there's a guy actually in Shamankulu who looks very much like uh, Samora and who travels around to these kind of events, especially for the state, and he talks like Samora, you know. And, and one of the slogans that he also um, mentioned this day was, that uh, the people is the police, which fitted very much into this kind of community policing discourse where you know it's the people who are doing, doing uh, the, the policing. Um, and in Swaziland, uh, although he is fun again with the Shembok, but uh, it's very much not the, the Korinkin, but also the kind of the founding father of the nation, as Samora is also very much, uh, who also actually had the same slogan saying that the nation is the police and nation in Swaziland is very much the people but it's also very much the king uh, at the same time. And both Samora and uh, Subusa the second were notoriously known for hard discipline, not tolerating any kind of crime and both of them also uh, performed, if not themselves, then ordered uh, uh, very publicly displayed kind of uh, uh, punishment of, of uh, criminals and other people that they found morally uh, wrong. So there's kind of that common uh, reference point um, for both the community policing groups um, and uh, the state police. Okay, the second politics, the politics of local power positions. I'm trying to make this short because time is, is uh, running. But as I said in the beginning, uh, community policing were, did not begin in areas where there was nothing or nobody taking care of crime problems. There was definitely a gap uh, with the high levels of crime, but there were other authorities engaged in this field uh, as well. And this politics I define, therefore, as the local level contestations over power resources and clients within the legally pluralistic settings where there are overlapping jurisdictions and also overlapping claims to authority. And this also con um, includes kind of the conflicts within the community policing groups and within the different institutions that uh, exist. 
And this is a, a picture of uh, an Induna, which is more or less can be translated to a headman in, in Swaziland. Uh, there are two of those in, in Buleni. There is actually a big conflict going on um, right now there over who is the real headman. Uh, they both have their council of elders or Mbagazi, which also resolve land issues and different kinds of social and family related disputes. Um, and that was a very big dimension of this politics uh, in, uh, in Ibuleni, which also affected the community police. On the positive side for the community police was that it actually meant that they got some of those type of cases that the council elders would have because people were like, ah, they did, couldn't be bothered to go there. So they would take out over even some land cases. But that also, again, gave way to conflicts because then they were blamed for taking land issues up and not following the right the right uh, norms being young people who don't, didn't really know what they were speaking about. So conflicts uh, around that, but also internal uh, group conflicts. Uh, there were a lot of concrete cases that I observed where they were trying to like recapture <coughs> clients and cases. Uh, because that was like an essential part of also establishing authority there. And the other picture is from, um, from Maputo. And that's the commandant, the, the commander in chief of the local police station, um, Mama Laura. Uh, and uh, this is a local um, businessman, but who also used to have like these kind of local security groups, uh, and he was a big supporter of the community uh, police. And he bought this uh, uniform to the community police, but they were never actually allowed to use them. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but I actually find it more beautiful than the state police uh, uniform, and I think the state police also felt a little bit threatened with that. This was actually a ceremony where the state police endorsed that they had been given this kind of uniform, but, but it was really a play for the local authorities and, the, and played into some of the conflicts that were already existing there. So at the end of the day, they were not allowed to use this uniform because it kind of threatened not only the state police authority, but also the Fulimo party and the local state authorities who were also engaged in this field. They felt like it was kind of a symbolic elevation uh, of these groups. So the politics of local power positions relates very much to the local arena, the way that community policing has been established as a power there and become significant uh, to um, to not only the domain of, of, uh, of uh, dispute resolution, but also to shifting alliances and shifting position in the different kinds of uh, institutions uh, that exist there. And this also, I mean, included kind of using the community police that was the, uh, to, to bolster the power positions uh, within, for example, the Folimo party in, in, in this area where there was a dispute between two people who wanted to be the leading secretary, uh, premier secretary, the first secretary of of, of the party, and they both tried to, at the same time, become leader of the community police because that kind of gave them extra, extra, extra force. And um, in this field, um, for better or for worse, uh, the community police had specific skills in this politics uh, that gave them a comparative advantage. Uh, in relation to these other kinds of power holders and providers. And that is again related back to their use of force, uh, their capacity always for direct and quick action when people come with a case. Uh, and here they very much compared themselves with the police, or oh, they never came on time, but also with some of these 
Council of Elders and with the neighborhood secretary. I mean, they were associated with, oh, it's such a slow process and they're tied down to all these different moral registers uh, and all these kind of rules. And although the community police would draw like on state police registers, especially in Maputo, but also on these kind of moral uh, registers and norms that were used in the other kind of forums, then there was this sense that the community police were not so tied or so bound up to these kinds of conventions, and therefore they were able to, to react much more rapidly uh, to these uh, issues. And I'm, I'm going to run out of time, but part of this politics of lo local power positions is also the, the money involved and the economy involved uh, in dispute resolution in these areas. But I can talk like for ages uh, about that and all the small kind of games also going on between the, the state, local state police officers and community police officers, the rewards they would get from resolving cases related to loans and recuperation of stolen goods. There was a lot of that going on. So there was also an economic aspect to these kind of, uh, these kind of politics. Uh, obviously illegal, but not necessarily illegitimate uh, to get rewards from, from doing this kind of job. I mean, some places we would call it in Denmark, we, we call it like something like client fees or something like that, you know, like, uh, yeah. I mean, you pay your taxes, but you also pay a little bit, right? So, okay, the third kind of uh, politics, uh, the politics of selfhood and mobility. Uh, this is in uh, Maputo. Uh, three of the community police guys hanging out, uh, waiting outside. Um, part of also being member of the community. Police. And I define this politics as the contested efforts of individual community police members to advance their position and life situation. That is to move forward towards a more secure life by using their community policing membership. This politics reflects how community policing, um, after it had become kind of like an authority and institution in its own right, uh, by disputed, it also became a space to aspire for becoming something else. For the most part, it was very much about getting stability and security in life by ways of a stable job or a position, but for others it also developed into explicit political ambitions for getting like a political career, either position in one of the local power structures uh, or on the national political scene. But in the first instance, uh, the members didn't really have these kind of uh, ambitions, so to speak. I mean, when they talked about how they came into a started in community policing, it was much more like, oh, like we were unemployed, we didn't have anything to do, uh, we were just hanging out. Uh, so we kind of wanted to do something useful. So in the first instance, it was also, it was very much a transformation of selfhood in the sense of just like being recognized for doing something. Uh, but also the social aspect of it, of hanging out and actually getting some friends, being part of a collect collective group, and that obviously should be seen on the background of the kind of kind of situation most of them were in when they entered community policing, unemployed. Some of them had kind of had a job, but they lost their their opportunities. They had quite low education, not really recognized, uh, hadn't been able to jump on the train like some of the other youth in in these areas had been able to do. Uh, but then later on, it also became like with the skills that they required, this was their own version of it, the kind of skills that they were able to require and the kind of power and reputation they were able to get uh, are a bit ambiguous due to the use of violence. They also started to kind of aspire for, 
for other things in life. Because in the last instance, uh, community policing was like not a place that they saw, not a place that they could grow old in, so to speak. It was not like seen as a final destination that members aspire to end up in, not even as leaders of the group. Um, although some of them that actually did get jobs, they continued to come and like help in their free time, um, the dream was always like to kind of end up being somewhere else. I mean, otherwise they were not successful. And obviously there were also people like the guy I said that got arrested now, uh, Fana, who, who, who went into community policing for other reasons. I mean, there were people that, criminals that somehow managed to get into the groups that kind of did it to continue their criminal activities, but they didn't survive very long. So, I mean, it wasn't like a criminal career as such, although it did happen at intervals that, that such elements came into it, but they, they were actually excluded quite, uh, quite quickly. There were especially three uh, routes to mobility um, that uh, that I at least experienced in these uh, two areas uh, uh, that was shared between Swaziland uh, and, and Maputo. Uh, perhaps mostly so this first category was mostly in Maputo, also in, in, in Swaziland, but perhaps to a lesser extent, and that's um, what I call like the mobility towards a state police agent. Uh, and this is Pedro, he's sitting in the room, he's very serious, which is very typical in Mozambique that you are unfortunate. But uh, just to give you a little bit of, of, of his story, uh, Pedro, he was 25 years old when he came into the community police and he was um, unemployed, he had had a job uh, with the UN mission washing cars during the peace, uh, uh, peace process, but uh, since 1997 he had been unemployed. He tried to like do some informal trade, actually going across the border to Swaziland, but he's had really like nothing to do and was just like kind of, kind of hanging out. And he was asked by the local uh, Fulimo um, area leader to to join the community police. Um, which was part of that whole mobilization uh, process. And he very much believed that he was recruited because he was a good guy, because he'd never done a crime uh, before. And Pedro was one of those community policing guys that he just loved all these kind of technicalities and methods around policing. And he would like, he was the one that was best at kind of copying the local state police officers uh, in writing. Now, he was also the one that kept the book. He came up with the idea to make like a re real case register, like the police, like a separate one. Um, and he also came up with the, with the introduction of police titles, so he made himself Oficial de Permanencia, which is the one who's like in charge of hearing the cases. And, and he made this other guy, the Comandante, the Commander. So he was like very into these uh, kinds of, of uh, issues, and he was also very well known with the police, he was interacting a lot with them. So, so kind of when, when, I, when I interviewed him after a while, and I asked all of them like what was their dream for the future, I was kind of... You know, like I was sure that he was going to say, "I want to be state police uh, police agent," but he actually answered this: "What I want is not as such to be a police. I want to be a police officer because he actually wanted to at that time, uh, because it is a job with the state. I would have my guarantee. I would have my pension because people say that the one who works for the state has guarantee. Besides that, the state employees receive a salary. There's also pension." So when I become old, then I will have my pension so I can relax. This is really what I want, security in life. So not so much being a police, but more like this kind of pragmatic, okay, now I've learned these skills, I actually enjoy it, so that would be my dream, that would be the realistic route now, having been here, having collected this information to have security in life, which says a little bit about 
uh, also where these people um, are coming from. And actually, just to give you the end of the story of Pedro, actually uh, in 2010, just after the election campaign, when he had also gotten his Fulimo voter card, that's politics in, in Mozambique, also if you want to get something with the state, was that he was actually approached by the central command of the police of the city of Maputo, which is like kind of the high, nicest, finest place of the police in Maputo, uh, to help out the police there with some traffic control uh, issues. And he was actually employed there, not as an official police, but less, as a kind of like civilian assistant receiving an okay salary, uh, but not the kind of pension rights and security, social security that, that he was he was hoping for, so still like kind of an uncertain position, but had moved uh, at least forward a bit. Um, so that was uh, the story of Pedro. The other kind of um, oh mobility route, sorry, uh, mobility route is uh, to become a private security agent, and that was very common both in Mozambique and also in, in Swaziland. I think out of the eleven guys that were the most active in Maputo when I started there, there was four of four full-time private security guards and three like kind of part-time, not really receiving that much, that had entered into uh, the private security, some continuing in, in the community police. Um, and uh, Mapuza, he similar story to uh, Pedro, except the fact that he was a bit older and married when he started community policing. Uh, also as an unemployed, his wife had had to move back to the rural areas uh, because he could not feed the children anymore. He used to have a job in a factory. He had come to Mbuleni because of that, but had lost it because the factory had closed down. And he entered the community police for similar reasons, um, also officially saying that it was because he was kind of tired of the criminals and he was actually also uh, assaulted himself. Um, he was very committed uh, to the community policing uh, job as well. In fact, he, was, he proudly said that he had been arrested three times and went to court three times for beating suspects and only went to prison once. So he was like, uh, in Swaziland there were actually court cases against community police using force and he was very like kind of, that was his like token, you know. But uh, Mapuzov got a job uh, quite interesting and this was very much often how it, it happened that he was actually recruited by the private security company to begin with because one of the guards of the private security company had, had robbed the factory. Um, and then they approached the community police to help recuperate uh, the stolen goods. Uh, and then after he had helped recuperate that, he was then employed uh, with the security company. But he's still not kind of making really the salary that he wants to. So he still wants to kind of move on, but at least, uh, at least he's moved somewhere. The last one is the politician and the elder, also from Swaziland. This is Mutundi. Um, he's had a very long transformation, a long route from where he came through community policing. He, was, uh, he describes very much his, uh, his membership of community policing as a calling and as a salvation, using very much this newborn Christian uh, uh, rhetoric. Um, he, he said it, was, it all started with a vision from God uh, when he was 17 years old and he was uh, involved in crime. He was a thief. He was part of this uh, gang. Uh, local um, police, uh, the local uh, gang of thieves that always were drinking and smoking daga, and then he had this vision from God. And the day after, they came from the community police and asked if he wanted to become a member. And I obviously asked, I mean, how could they come? They came and asked you as, as a thief. Oh, but that was the help from God, but also because I knew all the tricks. And that's, you know, sometimes they would incorporate actually thieves into the group, both 
to kind of change the person, but also to draw on the kind of skills that were. So that was kind of a common uh, practice, but it was interesting to hear his kind of way of, of talking about it. Uh, and Tunzi is not very interested any longer in police work. Uh, in 2004, uh, he was actually uh, appointed to become a member of one of those council of elders that are now in dispute as a youth uh, representative. Uh, later, he also became the leader of the community police, but because of some internal conflicts, uh, because he kind of used the space for very much more for political reasons than, than for policing, he was thrown out of that. But he's also run for parliament the last time, and he's now very actively engaged in running for parliament again. So he's kind of used community policing and gives no doubt that that is how he's actually been able to enter this political uh, career, or this at least attempt to enter a political uh, career because of the community policing, because of the reputation uh, and the self-esteem he speaks very much about as well, this salvation towards a different kind of person. Um, that has made it possible to, to go down uh, that route, although not yet quite uh, successful. And he leads me to the last layer of politics, and I'm sorry I'm taking so much time. Um, the politics of the national political arena I define as the contested efforts of politicians to enlist community police into their national political projects and the active, also the active involvement of community police members in these national political achievements, as Muntunji was an example of somebody trying to become part of the national uh, political arena. Um, so there were two ways, there were both efforts by other actors to enlist community policing uh, into uh, national politics, and there were also community policing members kind of engaging it in itself, so both uh, these two. And this picture uh, uh, exemplifies the first one. Uh, I followed that, uh, I didn't unfortunately follow any elections in Swaziland yet, so I don't know kind of the role of community police there in election campaigns, but in, I followed it very, very tightly uh, to maybe to the extent that they thought I was also a Fulim campaigner because <laughs> I walked around uh, with the community police, but they were dragged into the, uh, to the Fulimu campaign, not like explicitly for political reasons, but they were the security guards of these local uh, campaigns. So they were kind of providing security when they walked around, uh, putting up posters. And then last weekend, they were also told to put up posters because they were in such a hurry to put uh, up different posters. So they were drawn into that. There were also episodes uh, where they were called in to get rid of some of the opposition party members when they were trying to put up their posters. So there was kind of like an explicit drawing in of, of the community police in this uh, political uh, campaign. Uh, and they were also very, very strongly encouraged to get, uh, to get um, membership cards uh, for the party. Recently, another, an example from, uh, from, from Swaziland, although I didn't follow the, the, the campaign, is, is also how the community police are now being drawn into defending the, the regime. I don't know if you've followed it, but in Swaziland very recently there's been a lot of protests by youth, uh, youth movements, uh, pro-democracy against the kingdom and what they would call the dictatorial regime, which it also is to, to a large extent. Uh, but there, uh, they have arrested two youth leaders, and um, the Nguna headman that I showed later on, he was actually taken into court uh, in order to give his opinion about one of these youth leaders, because he was from Impulani, the area where I did work. And part of his discourse was very much that if these guys come out on bail, then the community police will kill them. 
So implicitly, they're also drawn into kind of this regime uh, defending discourse of, of the local uh, authorities. But the extent to which they're actually active in that, I haven't been able to observe. And it's very typical among the community police that when you are not there to see, they deny any kind of like involvement in, in this politics because it's also kind of amoral in, in their, in their policing, uh, policing tasks. So I was not able, but it does seem to indicate that at least that there are attempts uh, to do it. Uh, this is just one example uh, I'll finish off with on this politics just to show um, that there are also community police who are actually able to enter on the national political scene. This is uh, Juan Bangini. He was uh, one of the first people to get involved in community policing. Uh, I knew him very well. Uh, and uh, he is now, uh, he says himself, both because of his volunteer work in, in, in Frolimo at the local level, which brought him a kind of into community policing in the first place, but he very much uh, attributes the fact that he's been in community policing to the fact that he's now in the center of Philemon community, which is kind of like the sacred, best kind of warmest place you can be politically in Mozambique right at the moment. Uh, and here he's actually receiving a reward for the best community police in Mozambique by the vice uh, minister of... Um, of interior, and unfortunately, you can't see the colors, but these are very red, and this is a very red flag. So, so, uh, so uh, apart from being like kind of the state ceremony and community police, it's also very much symbolizes how Folimo tries to capture this this whole, which is not an uncommon thing in Mozambique for those of you who are familiar uh, familiar with it. Um, and here he is uh, at that celebration for the community police, sitting with one of the businessmen who are giving a lot of money to uh, to his community policing, uh, which is part of also like kind of the resource accumulation around that, but that's the, a story for another for another day. Okay, so now I will uh, round off. Um, the question that I don't have an answer to yet, uh, a full answer to yet, but we'll try just to conclude a little bit what runs through these kind of uh, layers of politics is that something that I would like to explore much more is not only what kind of social political formation community policing is becoming, but also the extent to which it's actually creating a new kind of politics. And I'm not quite sure if that's a yes or, or no um, answer. But I mean, at least, I mean, I think one of the things that can be concluded is that apart from, you know, bringing down crime, competing with, with local providers within dispute resolution and with the police, it's definitely been productive of a new political space, not unlike uh, David Bratton has written about the vigilante groups in, in Nigeria as well, uh, where different careers can be made, um, and not only the careers of the community police members themselves, but also by ambitious others who use the new space of community policing as a pool or source of power to further their interests and goals whether in local or national politics. And then I think there are three more kind of characteristics uh, of community policing as a, as a social political formation, which might give some ideas of what kind of politics we might be seeing here. I mean, the first one is that it's, it embodies a lot of kind of conventional dichotomies, and it's very morally ambiguous. I mean, it embraces like it's both kind of inside and outside the state goes in and out. It both embraces legality and illegality and certainly aspects of legitimacy and illegitimacy as well. It's both kind of benevolent. It brings back, like very physically brings back things that people have lost, but it does so also in very brutal, brutal ways, which like kind of also speaks to the legality, illegality, legitimacy 
legitimacy dichotomies in a sense, this kind of both being benevolent and, and brutal uh, at the same time. And, and this is also very much reflected in the way that people speak about them. I mean, they're both like kind of respected and feared, and they're kind of hated, disregarded, and looked down upon, but then they're also kind of admired for their ruthlessness, and especially this capacity to get, like, get things done and get it done very quickly. And, and I think this leads me to that kind of the second characteristic, which I'll maybe call youthfulness. I don't know if that's a good <laughs> word in English. Um, uh, not only because they tend to be young, like both socially and in terms of age, but also because uh, this, the concept of youth, at least in, in the two places I've done fieldwork, is associated with direct action, with, without any kind of hesitation, uh, the capacity for mutability, flexibility and negotiability. Uh, and above all, it's also associated by not being like strictly <coughs> attached or bound to some kind of fixed moral uh, registers, but they can draw on different kinds of moral registers and not really be bound to any of them, which of course is also a dangerous, unruly kind of kind of uh, uh, kind of way of, of dealing with issues, but nonetheless also attractive to many others and, and, and for people also to get their problems dealt with. And then the third characteristic, uh, I think, is it's also again maybe a bad word in English. I'm still looking for words. Is the concept of momentariness. Um, I mean, even though community policing is is kind of established itself and as an authority in its own right, it's kind of a transient political space. It's, it's a transit, it's a space you pass through, a space where you can be transformed and move on or move forward in, but it's not a place where you kind of want to stay, you know? Like you want to be there for a while, but you want to do it to get, to get on with things. And it also, mean, it also makes them very attractive for, for for other power, for like el the elders, as they would call them in Swaziland, but for, for people who want to enlist them in their political projects, because both the usefulness and the momentariness kind of also makes them expendable or dispensable, because you can kind of use them, but you can also kind of, you know, like they're not formally established, um, they're still young, so you can kind of use them, but when they start behaving a bit better, you can't use them anymore, you can also just kind of expense of them. These are some of my kind of um, kind of last thoughts about this, and I think a place maybe to look to to think more about uh, about this um, is in some of the literature that's come out on, on civil society and some of the literature that's coming out, especially in Asia actually, and also in the Middle East, on on the way that people in kind of these uncertain urban spaces uh, characterized by unemployment, senses of marginality, not really getting any access to rights um, from the state uh, that the person like Asif Bayat speaks about. He speaks about uh, the kind of politics in these places or the kind of politics that's valued in these places. And, and I quote, in place of protest or publicity, these groups move directly to fulfill their needs by themselves. In short, this is not a politics of protest, and here he's also referring to that it's not organized, but a redress and struggle for immediate outcomes largely through direct action. So he's actually introducing a little bit this aspect, this politics of direct, direct uh, action, action that I see very much in these community policing, policing groups. So I'll just kind of uh, finish up with that. It's not a very like kind of strong conclusion, but some thoughts about where this 
where I might like be going on and on from here, some of the things that are still up for, for discussion. Thank you very much, and sorry for talking so long. <laughs>